Father, I thank you for the assurance that that last hymn uh, encourages us to have. It reminds us that uh, when you say something, and especially when you promise something, Lord, that is, it is a rock upon which we can stand because you are a God who cannot lie. And you have told us that you have sent your Son to accomplish our salvation. He, God the Son, became a man and he came to this earth and he lived a righteous life in our place. And then he went to the cross where he died in the place of sinners, paying the penalty for our sins. And then he rose from the dead, showing that the death he died was enough to, to pay for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And that if we would trust in him, uh, his sacrifice and his righteous life, his righteous standing would be credited to us. Lord, that is your promise to us, and we, we trust that you are faithful and that you will do what you've promised. We turn from our sins and we trust in you, and we thank you that on the authority of your word, Lord, um, not because of anything in us, but because of the merits of your son, uh, because of your faithfulness to your promises, we thank you that you have forgiven us and rescued us and that you will bring us to be with yourself, Lord. We thank you that our salvation rests on you, not on us. And we pray that what we study this morning from your word would just strengthen our faith in that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we began to consider the biblical doctrine of predestination, and we looked at how the scriptures teach that the sovereign God, before he ever created the world, had a plan in place that determined the outcome of how the history of this world would unfold. And we saw at the beginning of the message last week that this plan of God was eternal and that it was all-encompassing, that it involves everything. In other words, we saw that God has predestined all things that occur, not just some things, all things. And included under that big umbrella of predestination is our salvation. And we spent the rest of the time last week looking at that narrow slice of predestination that relates to our salvation. I mentioned that when we're looking at that specific part of predestination that there are two sides of it that we need to consider, two sides that are presented to us in the scriptures. And the first side of that coin, if you will, is what we looked at last week, and that was election, God's positive and gracious choosing of some individuals for salvation. And his choice of them had nothing to do with any merit that they have, because as sinners we have no merit. It was based purely upon God's grace and his will to choose as he saw fit. Today we're going to look at the flip side of this coin of predestination, and that is called reprobation. Now before we get into it, I want to acknowledge up front that this is a very difficult doctrine to accept. And like most of you, I'm sure, if I myself did not see it clearly presented in the scriptures, I would not accept it just because it is so difficult to accept. And like last week, I'm asking you this morning to, again, be discerning as you listen to what is presented up here. 
Whatever you hear from the pulpit, you need to make sure that you check it against the scriptures always. And if you find that throughout the course of this message that I drift in any way from the scriptures, you need to make sure that you follow what God says in his word, not what I say. That being said, in order for us to be in the position to learn what God's word has to say, we have to come with humility. We have to come being willing to give up our positions on things if we find that the word of God is proclaiming something contrary to what my current position is. We have to come humble, willing to go wherever God's word takes us. Our commitment needs to be to the Lord, not to anything or anyone else, no matter what or how long we have held that position. We need to freely give it up if, if God's word is compelling us to do that. And if you didn't listen to the sermon last week, I'd encourage you to go on our website and do that because this doctrine is hard enough to accept. Um, if you don't hear the positive side of it, it's going to be even harder. So I'd encourage you to consider what we went through last week. But anyways, let's consider this other side of the coin of predestination that is called reprobation. If God elects or if he chooses certain people to be saved, then that means necessarily that there are others whom God has chosen not to be saved. If there are certain people that God has chosen to grant repentance and faith to, that means that he has chosen to not grant repentance and faith to others. And this side of the coin, as I said, is called reprobation. And that fancy word, it's not a word you use hardly ever, but it comes from the Latin word reprobationum. And I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but that's where it comes from. And that Latin word means rejection. Rejection. According to theologian Wayne Grudem, reprobation can be defined as, quote, the sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and thereby to manifest his justice, unquote. Let me say that again. Reprobation can be defined as, quote, the sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and thereby to manifest his justice, unquote. It is this side of the coin of predestination that is the hardest for us to accept. And why is it hard? Well, we'd much rather God choose to save everyone, wouldn't we? We don't like the thought of anyone going to hell because we know what a terrible place that is. But we have to always remember that our ways are not God's ways. God knows better than we do what brings him the most glory. And we always have to remember that his glory is the ultimate reason that he has planned for history to play out the way it is and the way it will. But we have to ask the question, does the Bible teach this? That is the bottom line. Does the Bible teach this side of predestination? And the answer is yes. And I leave it up to you to study the scriptures yourselves and 
find out for yourselves whether or not that's true. Uh, I'm going to give you a number of passages that teach this, and you can write them down. I'm only going to go to one this morning because that's all I have time for. But if you have a pen or a pencil, I'm just going to read off these other passages to you so that you can look up later on your own time. One of them is Romans 11, verses 7 through 10. Another one is 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 8. There's also Jude, verse 4. And there's Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. But the passage that we are going to is the most explicit about it, and it goes the most in-depth to it, and that is in Romans chapter 9. So turn with me to Romans chapter 9, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 10 through 24. Romans 9, 10 through 24. Before we start working through those verses, I want to just orient you to this chapter and what Paul is talking about in Romans 9, 10 through 24. In the first five verses of this chapter, we find Paul expressing his grief over the fact that so many of his countrymen, his fellow Jews, his fellow Israelites, are rejecting Christ and perishing. And then in verses 6 through 9, Paul is having to explain why that is. Paul is having to explain why so many of his countrymen are not following Christ. And the reason he has to explain this is because he's just finished in chapter 8 explaining how it is that nothing can separate God's people from the love of Christ. That God has a firm grip on them, nothing can take them out of his grip, nothing can separate them. Well, people might hear what he says in chapter 8 and say, well, what about God's people, the Jews? So many of them are clearly separated from his love because they're rejecting Christ and they're perishing. What about them? So Paul needs to explain why that fact does not contradict what he said in chapter 8. He's explaining in verses 6 through 9 and through the rest of this chapter that God has not chosen every single individual in the nation of Israel to be saved. He's instead only choosing a remnant to be saved. And in verses 6 through 9, he begins to give examples of God's choosing some people and not choosing others. And when we come to verses 10 through 13, we find another example of God's choice that Paul brings out for us. Let me read verses 10 through 13 for us. He says, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now in these verses, particularly verse 11, what reason does God give for why he chose Jacob rather than Esau? Well, he doesn't give a reason why he chose one over the other. Instead, he gives us reasons 
Uh, he tells us, what did I say here? It's hard to express. We're only told what the reasons were not. We're only told why not uh, he made that choice. Look at verse 11, verse A. He says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. Paul's making it clear here that God's choice of Jacob had absolutely nothing to do with anything that Jacob or Esau did or would do, either good or bad. It had nothing to do with them, either their merits or their demerits. And the reason why God chose to choose in that way was because of what it says in the rest of verse 11, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God wanted the credit for Jacob's salvation not to go to Jacob, but to God himself. Now we look at that and we think, boy, that's not fair. Why do that for Jacob and not also do it for Esau? If it has nothing to do with them themselves, there's no constraints upon God for why he should pick one and not pick the other. It's purely his choice, so why didn't he choose both of them? We think it's not fair. Poor Esau. Poor, poor Esau. If we're not careful, we can start to question God's justice when we see him making that kind of choice. Well, in verse 14, Paul strongly denies that there is any injustice in this choosing that God does. He says, verse 14, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? That's the question that arises when we see him choosing Jacob over Esau. Paul answers his own question, may it never be. No, there's no injustice here, he's saying. And then Paul doubles down on what he's just said by giving, giving even more examples of God's choosing in verses 15 through 18. In verse 15, Paul refers to God's words to Moses. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul here, he's quoting from Exodus chapter 33, where God is revealing who he is to Moses. And how does he reveal himself? Who does he reveal himself to be? I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He's saying that God as God has the right to choose who to show mercy and compassion toward. Now we need to keep in mind what it is that sinners deserve. What do sinners deserve? Do they deserve mercy? What do you think? Do sinners deserve mercy? No. If they deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy to give it to them. It would be justice. No, they don't deserve mercy. Instead, they deserve wrath. The justice due them is wrath because they've sinned against God. But it's God's prerogative to choose if he wants to show mercy to someone or not. And if he does want to show mercy, it's his right, it's his prerogative to choose who he will show mercy to and who he will not. There is everything in a man to draw God's gaze of justice, but there's nothing in a man that would cause God to choose him over someone else. No one has any claim on God's mercy. There's nothing in a man that would sway God one way or the other to choose him. The choice is purely coming out of God himself. 
It's his to give or not give as he sees fit. Then in verse 17, Paul, I jumped right over verse 16. Let me read that to back up what I just said. Paul says in verse 16, So then it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God's choice depends on God. It's, does, it is, finds no basis in anything about any man. It's all in God. Then in verse 17, Paul gives a particular example of someone God chose not to show mercy to. Verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God chose to leave Pharaoh in his sin. God could have chosen to show mercy to Pharaoh, but God instead chose to leave Pharaoh in his sin, to raise him up in his hard-heartedness and to pour out his wrath upon him. And the reason why God chose to do that was to demonstrate his power in the life of unbelieving Pharaoh. Now, what does Paul conclude from these examples that he's given? Verse 18, So then, he, God, has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. God chooses to bring some to repentance and faith, and he chooses to give others over to the sinful course they have already chosen for themselves, like Pharaoh. And again, we want to cry out, but that's not fair. That's not fair. And apparently Paul encountered that response before because look at what he says in verse 19. He gives this imaginary objector. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? We hear this choosing of God and we ask these kinds of questions. If God is that sovereign such that he has mercy on some unto eternal life, and he hardens others unto eternal damnation, then how can God still find fault with those who are hardened? I mean, how can they resist God? If he wants to harden them, they're going to get hardened. They can do nothing about it. But the objector seems to overlook the fact that the wicked has placed himself upon that terrible path, and he has no one to blame but himself. He overlooks the fact that the hardening that the wicked experiences is simply God sealing the sinner up to the destination the sinner has already chosen for himself. The hardening of God is not God stiff-arming those who really want to come to him. He's not changing them. It's not as if they want to come to him and then God says, no, I'm going to make you not want me. No, they already have chosen to not want him. They have rejected him and he is letting them go down that path. Now, we tend to ask the questions of verse 19 when we have forgotten our place as creatures in this world. Look at verses 20 to 24. Look at how Paul responds to the objector. He says, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath 
and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. In these verses, Paul puts the objector back into his place as a creature before his creator. Now, before I walk through these verses, it's very important that I point something out. These verses, 20 through 24, talk about God taking the lump of clay that is humanity and choosing to make some vessels for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. That is, he takes that lump and he chooses to save some and to judge others. And it's very important that we recognize that that we recognize what this lump of humanity is characterized as. We have to consider what this lump of humanity is characterized as. Because if we're not careful, we can think this passage is saying something that it's not saying. This passage is not teaching that God decided to take humanity and make it sinful. It's not saying that. God did not make men sinners. How do we know that? Well, Genesis 1, after God made everything and then he crowned his creation with man, what was God's evaluation of what he made? It was very good, very good. God did not make sin. God did not work evil into man's heart and make man a sinner. James 1 Verse 13 says that God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. 1 John 1, verse 5 says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. King Solomon, writing in Ecclesiastes 7.29, says this, that God made men upright. God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. So God did not make us sinners. We made ourselves that way. In fact, if you're still in Romans, go back to chapter 5, because Paul says this explicitly. Romans 5, verse 19. For as through the one man, who's that one man? It's Adam that he's talking about. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made, what? Sinners. Through Adam's sin, mankind was made sinners. So God didn't make man a sinner. Man made man a sinner. Back in Romans 9, in verse 22, when Paul describes the vessels that God is making from this lump as either vessels of wrath or vessels of mercy, he's saying something about what that lump is characterized as before God begins to fashion vessels from it one way or the other. Now, just let me draw this out a little bit. What does something have to be before God pours wrath on it? It has to be sinful, because wrath is a response of God against sin. What does something have to be before God pours mercy on it? Sinful. 
Without sin, there's no need for mercy, right? So what does that say about this lump that the vessels that God is making from it is either a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy? What kind of lump is it? It's a sinful lump. It's a sinful lump. And we know that man has only himself to blame for being sinful. Where God's activity as a potter comes into play in this passage is in deciding what to do with that already sinful lump. Will he only make vessels of wrath from it, or will he turn some of that clay into vessels of mercy? And as we've seen, that is a decision that God made before the foundation of the world. He planned what he would do with mankind once mankind fell into sin. He would make some into dishonorable vessels and some into honorable vessels. He would give some what they deserve, and he would save others from what they deserve. So in this passage, God is not making man sinful. What he is doing is he's taking already sinful man and he's making him either a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy. He's either sealing them up to their Christ-rejecting ways or he is saving them from their Christ-rejecting ways. Now, we think that God should choose to make all sinners recipients of mercy instead of wrath. That's what we want. That's, if we had our druthers, that's what we would rather God do. But we forget that God is God, not us. God is the molder, not us. We are the thing molded. God is the potter. That's what it says in 22, doesn't it? God is, or 21, God is the potter, we are the clay. Who are we to think that we have the right to interrogate God for what he does with his world? We have no business screaming at God in protest for why he chooses to take the sinful lump of humanity and from that lump to make some vessels for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Why he chooses to show mercy to some sinners and to harden other sinners. Does God, as the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe, not have that right? Yes, he does. Remember Job. Remember what happened when Job started to demand that God give an account of himself for what Job was going through. God came to Job in a whirlwind, and he put Job in his place. How? By revealing Job's ignorance of so much that God does in the natural world. Job was left placing his hand over his mouth and repenting for being so foolish as to think that he knew enough to suggest any injustice in God. How much more when we're dealing with mysteries this deep should we lay our hands over our mouths and trust that the judge of all the earth will do right? In verses 22 to 24 of this chapter, we see that God chooses the way he chooses because it is what brings him the most glory. That's why he chooses the way he chooses. And as believers, we learn here in verses 22 to 24 that the way God has chosen is our highest good. Because as believers, the rock bottom of our joy is God being glorified. If God did not show any wrath to anyone, how would we come to know the glories of the mercy and the grace of God? 
if God never demonstrated his wrath. Grace would not seem anywhere near so sweet. If Pharaoh wasn't such a hard guy against the Israelites and God delivered them, the deliverance wouldn't be anywhere near so amazing and glorious. If Pharaoh just said, oh yeah, go ahead, you can go. You know, the songs that they sang after they were delivered wouldn't sound anywhere near the same, right? They would think, oh, we could have just walked out on our own. It is the black backdrop that the diamond of grace shines and sparkles from. When you and I stand back and we see so many people running away from God and running toward a terrible end, and when we consider that the only reason that we are not running to the same fate is because God has chosen to show us mercy, and when we consider that he showed us mercy not because of anything he saw that was good in us, but purely because he is a God who shows mercy, when we consider that, that drops us to our knees in awe and wonder and gratitude that God would show such compassion to sinners like us. Because apart from his mercy, I would still be sprinting toward hell. And there's no reason in me why God took me off of that path. It's purely his grace. All the praise goes to him and his grace, none to me. So we've considered now both sides of the coin of predestination as it relates to our own salvation. And as you can imagine, there are objections to this doctrine, or at least questions about it. And you may share some of those. And I can't go through all of them, but we'll work through a few of them here in the time we have left. The first objection or the first question that comes to mind when we consider the fact that God chooses to save some and he chooses not to save others is this. What about God's desire to save everyone? We come to certain scriptures and it seems like God wants to save everybody. But then when we come to Romans 9 and we read verse 18 that God hardens whom he desires, it causes a disconnect because we see, well, God wants to save everyone. But then in verse 18 we see, well, God wants to harden some. How do those two things fit together? We can struggle to reconcile those two statements. Now, I want to begin by acknowledging that Scripture actually does make it very clear that on one level, God does desire the salvation of all individuals. And I think we see this in several places. Turn with me first to Isaiah 65. I just want to show you where we see that. Isaiah 65, and particularly verse 2. There God says, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts a people who continually provoke me to my face. Here God describes himself as standing, holding his arms out to his people, beckoning them 
to come back to him all the while they are spitting in his face. Clearly, that expresses a desire to to save, to see them come to know him. Next, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel 18, verse 23. God says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? What's God's preference there? He prefers that the wicked would turn to him and live, right? That's what he prefers. Next, drop down to verses 30 to 32. He says, therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Then go to chapter 33. We're looking at verses 10 and 11. Chapter 33, 10 to 11. Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you have spoken, saying, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them, how then can we survive? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? There it's very strong because God ties his desire for their repentance to his very existence. He says, as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. And then lastly, let's go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23. Here we see the heart of the Lord, Jesus, Matthew 23. Verse 37. Jesus there says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus wanted Jerusalem to come to him, to take shelter under his wings, but they were not willing. And we know that the vast majority of Jerusalem completely rejected him. And they, when they died, they went to hell. And Romans 9 tells us that those individuals who ended up suffering the wrath of God were hardened by God. So the very ones that Jesus desires to come to him are also the ones, Romans 9, that he desired to harden. How do we 
put those things together. Clearly, God desires the salvation of many whom at the same time he desires to harden. Well, how does that work? Well, we're not God, but even we as creatures have often experienced wanting two things at the same time that do not go together. In fact, many of you experienced that this morning. Your alarm clock went off at a ridiculously early hour, and you wanted to stay in bed under your covers. That was your desire at one level. But you also had a different desire at another level. You wanted to be here, I'm assuming, so that you could worship together with other believers, so that you could bring glory to God, so that you could encourage others and be encouraged by them. The problem is you can't have both things. You can't be in bed and be here at the same time. You had to decide what was the greater good. You had to decide which desire was going to be carried out. Now I want to be very careful to try to extrapolate our experience as humans to the uncreated infinite God. But I think it helps us to see that there's not necessarily a contradiction between these two things that we're reading in the scriptures. We've seen that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He desires to take, for them to take shelter under his wings, and he stretches out his hands imploring them to come to him. God is not being fake in expressing those desires. But at the same time, he knows that the sinner will never come to him for salvation under their own steam. God knows that in order for anyone to receive the salvation he is offering to them, he has to reach into their souls, give them a new heart, cause them to be born again, free them from their spiritual blindness so that they will see the ugliness of their sins and the beauty of Christ and will repent and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And God has to choose whether or not he's going to do that for everyone or for anyone. On one level, God does desire the salvation of all without exception, but there is a higher good to consider, which we hardly ever consider. What is the greatest good in all the universe? It is not the salvation of the creature. The greatest good in all the universe is the glorification of the Creator. The most important thing is that God is glorified and that His glory is displayed in such a way that all of His glory is seen. If God sent everyone to hell, different aspects of His glory would be covered up, such as His mercy and His grace, and He would not be seen by His creatures to be all that He is. But the same is true if God sent everyone to heaven. His justice and his wrath would be covered up and he would not be seen by his creatures to be all that he is. We just saw that with Israel being rescued from Egypt. If Pharaoh was not as wicked as he was, the deliverance would not seem nearly so sweet or wonderful as it was. Isn't that Paul's precise point in Romans 9? God said to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up so that my power will be displayed in you. And then later on he talks about how God uh, 
patiently bears with the objects of his wrath so that the objects of his mercy may see the richness of the glory of his mercy. If God doesn't display all of his glorious attributes, including his justice and his wrath, our praises to God would ring hollow in heaven because we would not understand just what it was we were saved from and we would not have a full-orbed view of who God is. But despite this consideration, we still proudly protest this thing called predestination that sends some sinners to heaven and the rest to hell. We think God should save everyone. We think God should take one for the team and deny himself enough to cover up his glory in order to save us all. We say, God, I don't need to see that part of you. I don't need to see your wrath. I don't need to see your justice. I will settle for this part of you. Is that too much to ask? God, can't you just deny yourself a little bit here and save everybody? But we don't realize that in making such a demand upon God, we are asking God to become an idolater. Have you ever considered that? We are asking God to value our eternal comfort more than his eternal glory. There's only one God, and he cannot glorify anyone except himself without becoming an idolater himself. We have to be extremely careful not to forget our place in this world as the creatures and the worshipers. We are not the creator. We are not the one who is worshipped. Who is this world all about? Who's it all for? What does Paul say in Romans 11, verse 36? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's turn to our second objection slash question. Doesn't this turn us into robots? If God's choosing of me is ultimately what caused me, we're looking at the election side of the coin, if God's choosing of me is ultimately what caused me to believe, doesn't that mean I'm just some kind of robot? Last week we saw passage after passage re-emphasizing again and again that the only ultimate reason any one of us turned from our sin and trusted in Christ was because God chose us and granted us the repentance and the faith to do so. The only reason that I have believed when others have not has nothing to do with me or any goodness or badness or wisdom or whatever in me. It has everything to do with the fact that God, by his grace, chose me and granted me faith to believe, whereas he has not done that for others. That truth is far too clear and far too prevalent in the scriptures to deny. To say otherwise is to twist the plain meaning of dozens of passages. And we established pretty firmly that this is true last week. But that leaves us with the question, am I just a robot? How can God be ultimately responsible for my faith in him without making my faith in him some forced artificial thing? In answering this question, we need to be aware of our own tendency to view our limitations 
and just assume that God is as limited as we are. Our experience is limited to building computers and robots that are not able to do anything of their own will. The only way that they can do something is if you program them to do it or you put in some command that causes them to do it. Any intelligence that a robot appears to have is artificial. It's not real. When it performs an action, we know it was not the robot voluntarily doing it. It was the human behind the robot. And we tend to take that human limitation in making things and we wrongly apply it to God. We think that if God is ultimately responsible for my faith, then that must mean my faith is artificial, not real. We think that if God is ultimately behind my response of repentance and faith, then that means I'm just a robot. But do we think God is as limited as we are? Don't God's abilities infinitely outstrip our own? Is not the infinite God powerful enough, smart enough, wise enough to be, on the one hand, completely sovereign over our salvation, and yet, on the other hand, at the very same time, give the creatures he made a real will and real emotions and a real intelligence with which they truly embrace that salvation? Can't he do both things without them contradicting each other? Yes, he can. It's clear in Scripture and it's clear from your own experience that when you believed in Jesus, you were doing so willingly, you were doing so mindfully and freely. And yet at the very same time, you have to acknowledge, as we saw last week, you have to acknowledge that your free and willful belief was caused by God and that he alone gets the credit for it. And we struggle with holding those things together, but Paul apparently did not have any problem with holding those things together. Because right after writing Romans 9, he wrote Romans 10. Romans 9, he emphasizes God's sovereignty over salvation, but then in Romans 10, he speaks of man's responsibility to receive salvation. If you're still in Romans, look at chapter 10, verse 9, where our response is commanded. If we're robots, you don't have to command us to do it. God just sends in the command and it happens. We're commanded to respond. He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So Paul has no problem saying both things at the same time. More importantly, Jesus has no problem with this. Turn back to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. God has hidden saving truth from unbelievers, and the only reason why others have believed is because God has revealed it to them. 
Verse 26, yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Our salvation is entirely dependent on whether or not the Son wills to reveal the Father to us. He's completely sovereign. But then look at verse 30, where Jesus says right after that, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, the human response is not contradictory toward the fact that God is totally sovereign over our salvation. Jesus is not embarrassed by that. He makes no apology for that. He doesn't try to cover it up. He just says them right next to each other at the same time. Just because we cannot understand how those two things fit together does not mean that both things are not true. It just means we're not God. Just because a slug cannot understand how you can sprinkle salt on your food and eat it without shriveling up doesn't mean that you're not able to do that. It just means that slug is not human. He cannot understand how you can do that. For those of you that don't know, if you pour salt on a slug, it will kill the slug. The last question or objection that often comes up is, well, why share the gospel? If people's salvation is entirely dependent on God's choice, what do I need to go share the gospel for? God's going to save them. He doesn't need me to do it. Why should I go do that? Well, I want you to remember back to last week how we saw that predestination is an umbrella that covers more than just salvation. It affects literally everything. So it shouldn't surprise us that not only has God chosen who he's going to bring to faith, but he has also chosen how he is going to bring them to faith. And how does God bring his chosen ones, his elect, to faith? Turn back to Romans 10. This is the last place we'll be at. Romans 10. And verses 14 to 17. We're going to see here that God not only foreordains the ends, but he also foreordains the means to achieve those ends. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How does this fit together? Well, not only has God foreordained before the creation of the world who he would cause to receive salvation from his son, but he has also foreordained before the creation of the world who he would use to lead his chosen ones to his son. Now, God doesn't need us. He could have chosen to write the gospel in big cloudy letters across the sky, but he has instead chosen and graciously decided to use us, his people, to go and bring the gospel to our neighbors. 
God has seen fit to tie the salvation of his people to his church's faithful proclamation of the gospel. So that person that shared the gospel with you, that finally led you to place your faith in Christ, not only had God decided that you would come to faith in Christ from before the foundation of the world, but he had also decided that that person would be the one to give that message to you and that you would respond. So why do we pray for the salvation of the lost? Why do we stick our necks out to proclaim the gospel to people? We do it, first of all, because Christ commands us to do it. But we do it, second of all, because that is the means that God is pleased to use to draw his people to his son. So I have to stop. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how clear it is. It, it so often tells us hard things, things that we really struggle to wrap our minds around and often we are unable, Lord. But instead of that being a reason for us to just throw out whole sections of your word, it should instead be a reason to bring us to our knees in, in humility before you in prayer, um, that we should recognize that you are an incomprehensible God. We will never be able to fully understand you because you are infinite, and yet you have graciously chosen to reveal enough of yourself to us in order to save us and to help us live a life that, it, that honors you. And Lord, if anyone is here who desires to come to Jesus Christ uh, in repentance and faith, help them to understand that you are not stiff-arming them, that if they desire that, it is because you have planted that desire within them, and they should be encouraged to come all the way to Jesus Christ, to turn away from their sins and surrender their lives to him in faith. Lord, this should be an encouragement for them to come, not a discouragement, Lord. Uh, may you do that work in their heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.